Hey there, welcome to night school. It's uh, President's Day. It's President's Day, which means nothing to me. It means very little, let's say. It means enough to mention it. I think that's a good, uh, <laughs> it's a good measuring stick. It means enough to mention it, but that's it. And I'm at my standing desk, which was previously known as the kitchen counter. Remember when standing desks were just called the kitchen counter? Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, in recent years, a word has become very popular, which is cringe. And it's an old word. I'm going to tell you the etymology of the word cringe. No, I don't know the etymology, although that'd be interesting because it's one of those words that it sounds very physical. I mean, I guess it is. I mean, I guess it describes a physical reaction, but it's become this very mental idea. It basically means when someone does something embarrassing, humiliating, something that isn't cool, that gives you a reaction. And it's become a popular internet term, but it's made its way into pop culture as a whole. To the point where people even use it in a way that wouldn't have made any sense. Like the use of it, the way that it's used in a sentence, as many things, you know, many things go this route. Uh, but the way that it's used in a sentence doesn't even correspond to its original use. You know, you'll, you'll hear people say, and I, I cringed even saying this, but you'll hear people say, that's so cringe. Oh my God, that's so cringe. I mean, housewives are probably saying that now. It's one of those things that made its rounds through the youth. And I'm sure like 60-year-old women are saying that now. You know, they probably say that to each other. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that nothing is cringe anymore. Like, everything became, uh, and you hear people say cringe worthy. Oh, my God, that's cringe worthy. I hate, see, I, I don't even want to use the word. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like everything became that way. And I think everything does. I think, I think that life itself, I think society itself veers toward what people call cringe. And you can see that with the way people look back on history. You know, you'll see where people look at any photo of anybody from previous decades and they think everybody was cool. Like they look at pictures of their parents from the 1970s and they, their parents are just wearing the uniform. They're in bell bottoms, you know, a wide lapel shirt. You know, they have the haircuts of the time. And the, the quality of the photo, of course, lends atmosphere. Like, people forget, because they're so used to looking at photographs from previous decades, that they forget that reality looked the same way. They forget that standing in a room and the way light comes in, the way everything looks, while, of course, there are differences, there's aesthetic differences and all that, but it's like people forget what reality feels like, even when they look back at their own lives, you know, we tend to view things with this almost cinematic or photographic lens, and we almost think that the quality of the photos, I mean, in the same way that people look back on, you know, the era before color photography, and they think, they kind of view it in as if everything was in black and white. You know, it's almost a joke that people make, like, oh, I didn't realize that people actually were, were in color back then. But it's important to remember that physical reality was the same, and it looked the same. And, uh, you know, if you had a friend who suddenly started wearing bell-bottoms, like they suddenly had a, a makeover, you very well might have looked at them and been like, oh my God, what a poser, what a poser. 
You might have cringed at them. But we look back on that and we see photographs and we're like, they were so cool. Everybody was cool. Oh my God, look, they have cigarettes in their hands. That's so cool, you know, and cars look cool. Everything seems cooler. And then look what happens, though, when people try to reinvent that. Like there was this, I don't, I don't know that I would even call it a trend, but there was definitely something going on where these young men, typically nerdy young men in the mid to late 2000s, around the time I was in college, they started to surface where they started to wear like three-piece suits and bowler hats. Like this wasn't a huge thing where you saw it all the time, but you would see a guy, like when I was at college, you would see guys on campus and they would talk in this old-timey way, but they were really just internet nerds who were like, you know what, men were better back then. And and now, you know, like top of the morning to you. They would say things like that. And it was kind of ironic, but not really, because they were actually trying to... It's like this... I don't know. It's just, it's just like this way of saying, like, I'm more like the men of yesterday. And uh, that became sort of mainstream. I, I never saw the show Mad Men, but... Around that time, you started to see skinny ties become popular. You saw people started to wear tighter suits. Their, their suits were more, more like the suits you would have seen on a show like Mad Men. So if you went to social events or you saw wedding photos from, uh, I would say, probably the early 2010s. I don't remember the exact era. I don't remember the exact years. But it was around then, probably like early to mid. You started to see men's suits reflected that. A lot more skinny ties a lot more form-fitting suits. And if you look back at at wedding photos and men's suits from the 80s and 90s, they look like vaudeville clowns. You know, and this gets back to what I was talking about, about what I always talk about, about, you know, just the cycle of trends, how very few trends are new. It's just that we get sick of whatever's going on right now, and when we start to notice that it doesn't look good, And then we get into something else that is actually closer to something that already happened. Hence, like the suits. Like, I was looking at a photo of two guys, two gangsters, and they were both in suits in the early 90s. And one of the the suits was blue, and the other guy's suit was red, which is ridiculous to begin with. But the suits were, like, falling off their bodies. They, They really looked like vaudeville clowns. It looked like a joke. It looked like a little kid who puts, like when you see a little boy wearing a really baggy suit, like a, like a men's suit, and it's a joke, it's like, oh, look at the cute little boy wearing the man's suit, and it's like falling off his body. It looked like that, and so of course we eventually noticed that. Like, of course, like pop culture was like, oh, hey, these suits look ridiculous. Oh, remember Mad Men? It's like Mad Men came out too. There's usually some sort of, uh, there's often something that comes out in pop culture, like a musician or a show or a movie. At least that's the way it used to work. I don't know about now that everything is so fractured. Uh, but it used to be that way where something would come out. And, and your Mad Men, I think, was a definitely an, a big influence on that because people were all watching that. And they noticed that those suits look cool. They noticed there was something cool about more tight-fitting suits with a, with a skinny tie. And it's hard to imagine baggy suits being cool again, but they very well might become cool. Baggy clothes are probably already becoming cool. I mean, whenever I comment on fashion, like like the other, like I posted something online a couple of weeks ago where I was like, um, I, I was like, you know, I'm just waiting for those 
long sweater trench coats that girls wore in the early 2000s to become cool again. And then people were like, I, they're already cool again. And I was like, okay. You know, I deleted it because I'm just like, okay, yeah, I'm, I have no idea. I have no idea what people are wearing, but it makes sense. Because the girls who wore those sweater trench coats, and I was told they're called long line trench coats, or long line sweaters. They're not actually called trench coats. At the time, back then, I called them sweater trench coats in the early 2000s. And they were always girls who wanted to seem older than they were. Like it was the sort of girl in high school who would come to class late. Like if you had first period with her, she would come to class late with a Starbucks in her hand and like her her key her car keys jingling in her other hand. And she was always like hurried and stressed because she saw older women. Like she thought of like a, a professional go-getter older woman being some, and by older woman, I just mean an adult like someone not in high school. But they thought of like the go-getter woman being somebody who, you know, always has a Starbucks in her hand and her keys are always jingling and she's checking her phone. And, you know, phones were were around, but they, they weren't, people weren't quite as focused on them because you could do less with them. But they were basically, they were always like juggling. It was like the, like you walk into a room, you're late, but you're, you were doing something important. And your sweater trench coat communicates that. Your boots with jeans, like they wear tight jeans with boots and a sweater trench coat. And maybe like a low cut top underneath. And so it was this whole look. And I was very aware of what they were going for at the time. It was like, I'm an adult woman. But, uh, you know, and in 2010, you never would have imagined that long line sweaters, as they're called, would come back. But yet... I just made a joke about it, and I had, like, multiple people being like, they're already back. Aren't you paying attention? You know, it's like people get that way about it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it could be the same thing with baggy old suits. People could be looking like vaudeville clowns again. Just the right person has to do it. And maybe, you know, and that, that's what I'm getting at, is I could be saying that right now, and it could already be happening. I mean, granted, people aren't socializing as much right now. People aren't going to events, but... We very well could see already be seeing men wearing baggy clothes. And I mean, I've even seen the trend with baggy clothes again. Because I mean, clothes were, baggy clothes were so popular, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s that, of course, the next trend was everything tight fitting, everything form fitting, you know, skinny jeans, as they called them, which there's just something grating about saying that phrase skinny jeans. But uh, it sounds like they're talking about genetics. Skinny genetics. He's a very thin frame. We call that skinny jeans. But no, it's like, you know, inevitably these things come and they go and they cycle. And it's, it's. I mean, I, I see it with everything. I mean, I even think about death metal where, you know, there was a trend uh, when I got into death metal where everything was technical. You know, every band, it's like there were just tons of weird dissonant notes crammed in. You know, everything was fast and technical and strange sounding like no you know there were there was no normal sense of melody or riff it was just like a lot of like tapping and like weird just weird stuff going on and that's what was popular and people called it tech death metal but even just normal death metal veered that way even normal death metal was was pretty technical as they called it 
And then guess what happened? Like a, a few years later, somebody started, you know, doing some sort of retro thing where they sounded way more raw and rugged, more like the demos you would have heard in the late 80s. And people were like, oh, and the aesthetic matched, you know, because like the trend in death metal had been like Photoshop album covers, full like high resolution paintings or photographs. It was all very digital, but, you know, even when it wasn't just purely digital, it was still like full color. And then, you know, bands started to be like, oh, hey, we're going to play like rugged raw, primitive, old-school death metal, and we're going to try to, like, recreate the way old demos looked, and then people were like, whoa, that's refreshing. Even though it's this old, older thing, people were like, that's refreshing. I mean, you see it with black metal as well. You see it with all kinds of, uh, you know, all, all kinds of subgenres in music. You just You just see that sort of cycle, and especially when new things stop happening because that's something you see in music is at some point just new things stop seeming to happen like people have hybridized different genres together people have added all kinds of decorations when you know even being experimental hits its wall you know i'm not saying you nobody can make new things in our world today but i I think a lot of us have noticed the stagnation so there's even more emphasis on just recreating something older and so you, you see it with death metal, you see it with long line sweaters, sweater trench coats. But anyway, what got me going on all this is just that we have a tendency to look at the the era immediately before us and be like, oh my God, that's so cringe. Like the fact that dudes wore suits or, ba- or baggy clothes, what I'm going to say. Like, you know, I've seen where baggy clothes are popular again. I've seen where like hip young girls are wearing really baggy pants. Things like that. And you wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. You know, you wouldn't have seen that. But now we're seeing we're like wearing really baggy clothes or it's like mom jeans coming back. I know about all the fashion trends, clearly. But, you know, nobody could have imagined, quote unquote, mom jeans, skinny mom jeans. No, nobody could have imagined those being popular again in 2006 or 2004. I mean, I think in 2006, I think you did start to see like hip indie girls start to veer in that direction. But, uh, you know, let's just say in 2001, 2002, you would not have, if you told a young person that all these girls are going to be wearing high-waisted jeans that are like light in color, you know, they they wouldn't, with, with a little bit of bagginess in weird places, like a little bit of bagginess in the pelvis area, you know, they wouldn't have believed you because those seemed so uncool at the time. Hence them being called mom jeans when they became popular again. And then now it's almost all you see. You don't see low-rise jeans, which all the girls are wearing, but I'm sure those are already coming back now. If long-line sweaters are back, I'm sure low-rise jeans are back. Um, but, uh, you know, but we have a tendency to look at look back at the immediate time before us and be like, oh my God, it's it makes me makes me cringe. Those baggy clothes make me cringe. Uh, but we look back at further decades and we think everything is cool. Like you look at men from the 1950s and you think everything is cool. Men from the 1940s. Because there's this whole line of thought where people say, oh man, I wish I lived in the time where like every man wore a three-piece suit just to walk down the street. Oh, I wish I lived in the time where every man had a cigarette in his hand. 
You know, and you'd probably feel the same way then as you do now. Probably feel the same way about it then. You know, you'd probably think like, oh, you know, I'm not terribly into this. It's like what I always say about the 80s and 90s nostalgia that people got into, where it's like, sometimes even I get caught up in that, where I was like, man, if I, if I could go back to that period with a fresh set of eyes, but then I have to remember that that's what created me. Like, I lived during that time. I came of age during that time. And it still made me who I am today. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there was a lot of mental struggle to that. Like, I didn't feel, you know, I didn't identify with the times. Like, even though I was into things that were happening then, I didn't just feel like, oh, I'm in my era. I'm in my time. You know, and, and very few people did. The people you look up to from that time were rebelling against that too. You know, the people who you look back on and you're like, oh, these musicians were so cool. These people back then, they were just so cool. It's not like those people were like, oh, I'm living in the time that represents me and everything is perfect. Those people were probably fighting against everything that was around them. You know, not that, not that they were just like making a protest of everything, not that their expression was an expression of protest, but just that everything around them influenced them to do something else. And I have to look back at the, you know, the, you know, while I wasn't, you know, I was only like five years old at the end of the 80s or, you know, I wasn't even, I think I turned, I turned five years old in 1990. So it's like, I didn't get to like experience the 80s, but I did get a lot of backwash from it. You know, I did get a lot of backwash of 80s culture growing up. Uh, but, you know, I didn't look at it and be like, oh, this stuff's perfect. Living right now is perfect. Like I still rebelled. You know, I still found things around me disagreeable. I still didn't feel that everything was perfect. And I had a great life. Like, I loved, you know, I had a great childhood. But yet I still didn't feel like, I didn't identify with culture. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of what it comes down to. I still felt like I was kind of like struggling upstream against something. And that's important to remember when you look back. Like, if you were in the 1950s and you look back and you're like, oh, man, if I could go back to when uh, women when women wore poodle skirts and men wore pompadours, first of all, that's just like one little sliver of the culture back then. Like you see photos of that because that's what somebody wanted to emphasize, but it's not like you'd be surrounded by that, uh, and it's not like everybody would be cool. I think that's what people forget when they look back. It's like a lot of these people were posers or just going along with the times. And there is something to be said for it. You know, I, I think that I'm a person who favors the aesthetics of certain eras for sure. And I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong about that. I don't think it's delusional either to look back and be like, you know, I kind of liked it when people just wore simpler clothing when there was just this kind of natural conformity. You know, because there is something grating about all of the options that people have now and the fact that even with all of these endless combinations and options now in terms of fashion, self-expression, creativity, music, art, you know, even with all of these options, all of these influences, you see where people still conform. And conformity is a loaded word that I don't like, but just going by its strictest definition, you know, you end up seeing conformity. I mean, you see that with all of the people with tattoos and dyed hair, people who make alternative fashion statements, you see where very quickly it's a whole, there's a whole group of people who think and act exactly alike. 
Uh, and uh, then, you know, and in that environment, becoming conservative, like like conservative, not politically, but just dressing more conservative becomes the rebellious statement. You know, it's like when, when every one of your friends has the same weird haircut, not having that weird haircut, having a normal haircut becomes the weird thing, uh, which is why you always have to keep that perspective and like remember like the things you're paying attention to, the things you're surrounded by aren't necessarily everything. And it's hard, it, you know, it's hard to see that. It's very difficult to see that, like, which is why, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm careful about generalizing because you can go, oh, everyone's saying that. And it's like, oh, two people you know said that. Two people you know did something. And so in your mind, everyone, two people become everyone. Um, but, uh, you know, with the cringe thing, I want to go back to that because, you know, we have a tendency to give people a pass from decades past when very likely, like if you're friends showed up at a party and all of a sudden they had long sideburns and, you know, a mop top and they were wearing like a, a striped turtleneck with bell bot with orange bell bottoms and they had never looked like that before. You might be like, oh, oh man, you, you just transformed yourself overnight and you look, you look like a caricature of, of what's popular right now. You might very well feel that way, but when somebody takes a photograph of it, and it comes out with you know, and and you see it thirty years later, and it's this old atmospheric photograph where everything looks brown and dark, and the corners of the photo are rounded. You go, oh my god, that things were so cool then. Things were so atmospheric. Everyone just had this sense of style. When in reality, who knows how you would feel at the time? And you can't recreate that. You know, whenever somebody tries to, you know, it's like rockabilly guys. Like, even though I love the, the 50s and 60, early 60s, you know, I've devoted, you know, every night's a school night largely to that era of music and to some degree culture. I don't like these modern guys, modern guys from the last 20, 30 years who or more, you know, uh, I think I think this goes back to kind of the 80s, uh, but rockabilly guys. You know, it's not a cool thing to me. Like, even though they look like people who were cool in previous decades, like having a pompadour and wearing a leather jacket and trying to sound, like trying to play music that sounds like music from another era, it just doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work for me. And, and there's people who like it, it works for them. But for me, like, even though I like the original thing, this, you know, retro version you know, this this version that tries to recreate this earlier era, just it's it does make me actually cringe. I go, oh, man, when you when you try to talk that way and look that way, it makes me cringe. It's OK that you do it. Uh, but it's just one of those things. And uh, but even if you were back in that era, you'd probably find things to cringe at because that's just the nature of life. There are always things to cringe at. But I do. Th I think what I'm getting at here, too, though, is I feel like we've entered an era. And maybe this is just my own. Maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm the only one who feels this way. But I feel like we've entered an era where we are so exposed to other people. We are so exposed to different sides of people, their impulsivity, their attempts to to be cool their attempts to be not cool, which is a form of trying to be cool. It's like what I talk about when people like 
talk about how miserable they are, how much they hate life. They're actually trying to be cool. Or when people like use self-deprecation, I think that this is a better example. Like when people use self-deprecation as a way of actually elevating their status by being like, look at how humble and self-defeating I am. Look at how much I hate myself. When that is actually social currency. You know, it's kind of like that idea. Uh, But we've entered an era where I see it where like I feel like everything became, everything started to make me cringe and as a result, you know, I got just numb to it. And and for my own just sanity, I had to just be like, oh, you know, I can't let this get to me anymore. And I can't worry about how someone perceives me either. Like there's a time to say things. There's a time to dial it back. There's a time to express yourself to certain people in certain ways or everybody in certain ways. There's a time to do this show, whatever. And I mean, I'm sure this show would make a million people cringe. And that's okay with me. Because I don't think that that word is even relevant. I don't think that idea is even relevant right now to the world we're living in. Because everything is that way. Everything seems artificial. Everything seems, you know, manufactured. And I don't mean manufactured in a capitalist sense or or that things are marketed in that way. Because even the people themselves are doing it. You know, there's a grassroots level to all this stuff. And, you know, even when you get outside of like what companies try to do to market their products and stay hip, you see where individuals do it themselves. And it's very easy to see through it. And that's kind of like where the the cringe thing comes in that people talk about, where it's often something where you see through it and the person saying it or doing it might not. You know, they they might not be self-aware enough to know that what they're doing is embarrassing and, you know, there's... And I myself do. Like, I recognize that... Because, I mean, here's the thing, too. I know the exact formula that I could use to be cool. Like, I know. Like, I know, like, what qualities about myself people like and don't like. Might not know all of them. I'm not going to say I know all of that. Because how do you you know truly how people see you? But you can just get a feeling from the people you know, even like what they respond to, what they like about you. You know, there's certain friends of mine where nothing barring some kind of deep personal betrayal or scathing insult is going to rock the boat of your friendship. But I can tell the things that like, I mean, for example, like I'll be on a kick where I I just have like, I'm just expressing myself or something and I'll send like a bunch of long messages to a person and they won't respond, you know, and it's, and they'll do that to me. That doesn't make a difference because we're friends, you know, and uh, sometimes there's an imbalance there. Like sometimes you get on a kick and you say a lot. Sometimes you match each other. And that's that's kind of an energy thing, too. But it's like when I do that, when I say like say when when you say more, I mean, I think about this, too, because it's like it's like the politics of dating. Where like I used to think like when I used to talk to girls back in those days. No, but when I used to like communicate with girls, like it would be like, I would think in my head, like I want to say less than what she says, you know? And there was always this thing, like when you meet a new girl who's excited about you, she's always going to message you more, but there reaches a point where you've been seeing each other long enough where she's no longer, maybe she's less enthusiastic, whatever it is, or just like, 
you know, it's not new anymore. Like you're not completely new to them anymore. And, uh, you notice that like there's a little bit of a drop off in that, but it's hard not to kind of get into that game that people play where it's like, I want to send her less messages. I want to ask her to hang out less than she asks me. I want to say less to her than she says to me. And that's a weird power game. You know, it's a weird thing you do to kind of try to conserve your own power. And I don't think it's like inherently manipulative because I never used that to some sort of manipulative end. It was just sort of like, you know, I don't want to show all my cards maybe. I don't know because w- I've never been someone who approaches that stuff and thinks of it as a game. But you do find yourself inevitably playing a game in that regard. But I've kind of reached a point in my life where I, I don't care either way. You know, I don't care either way. And, I, you know, granted, I'm not like uh, flirting with girls through text messages these days. But at the same time, just in all my interactions these days, uh, I just I don't even think about like what comes across a certain way. I feel like as long as I'm expressing myself honestly and in a way that fits whatever my energy level is, and yeah, there's certain situations where you have to hold back. There's certain people that you have to hold back from. It's not like there is no restraint at all. But I'm just at a point where it's just like everything seems like it became, everything started to make me cringe. The more I pay attention to to things, the more I, I see what people say, the more that it does make me cringe if I let it, if I let it. And a lot of it's like the kind of neediness and wantiness that people have. You know, it's like what I call wantiness and what other people call neediness. You know, that's a that's a big one. When you kind of see someone's intent, like they're looking for some sort of approval getting a phone call here one sec um where where people are are looking for some kind of approval i'm just worried my phone's gonna vibrate off the table jesus um it's like you called me and my phone fell off the because you called me and my phone was vibrating it fell off the table and broke and you have to buy me a new phone um but uh, but anyway just it's like what people are looking for And like I do, you know, there's something about me where it's like, I do like to be entertaining or interesting. Like I will fully admit that. I'm not saying I'm either of those things. Because like I like to express myself in a way that is interesting to me and entertaining to me. And I hope that other people feel the same way. I don't know that they always do. Sometimes they completely misinterpret me. Often I feel completely misinterpreted. I mean, especially with humor. Where, like the worst, I think the, I think where I, where I lose my mind, where I completely lose my cool is when I say something that's meant to be a joke and somebody says, you know, you weren't kidding. And I'm like, no, I was like, I I still have a memory of that many, many years ago where I had some friends who were really into Radiohead, and I, I have no beef with Radiohead whatsoever. Never have. I've never, I've never been interested in them either. But I don't even have an opinion on Radio Radiohead. Radiohead. Uh, radium head. No, I, I don't have an opinion on Radium head. <laughs> um, but some some people were talking about it, and uh, somebody I think somebody asked me like they were like, "Are you into Radiohead? Are you into Radium head?" And I, I think I just said, "Oh, I don't," you know. 
they're too popular for me. It was just it was a it was a self aware joke. And they were like, You shouldn't use that as like a standard for what you like. And I was like, Oh, I was just kidding. It was it was just a flippant joke and they were like, You weren't kidding. And I, I could have stabbed them right there. You know what I mean? Like I was just like it wasn't even a funny joke to say like, Oh, they're too popular for me. But it was like and that just tells you something like about their impression of me. Where it's like, oh, Eric's the kind of guy who doesn't like things because they're popular. Which has never been the case for me. You know, I've never had an issue with things. While I like to dig for obscure jewels, I do like the jewels, the hidden jewels. You know, nothing, I've never had a standard where it's like something is too cool or too popular for me. Uh, but, you know, it just sucked. It just sucked for somebody to just completely misinterpret me and then to tell me that, tell me what my intent was when they were wrong. It was just kind of infuriating. But but anyway, you know, in life, it's like, you know, I know the formula that I could use to be considered cool. Like, I know the restraint that I could use to be considered cool because I know what people are, I know what people respond to. I can see the formula. And not even just for me personally. Like, there are things, and I mean, this is very a very self-involved point as usual, but you know, there are things about yourself and you note, if you pay attention, you notice what people respond to. And I mean that like in, in person, like, you know what your friends listen to. Like when you're talking to a friend of yours, you know, that the points that they go, oh, you know, when they're listening to you, because I mean, it's, it's an amazing feat to have even one person on a one on one in a one on one conversation actually listen to what you're saying. Like, that is amazing. And we've distorted our minds to where that isn't good enough. Like, just having one person pay attention. I mean, that's kind of been my philosophy with this show, where I'm like, if one person listens to this show and gets one idea they like or laughs once or just finds mild amusement for one second, that's a success. That, to me, is a success. Because you think about all the times that you're sitting and you're talking to somebody or you are the one sitting and listening, but you're not listening. Like, I mean, that happens to me all the time where it's like somebody's explaining something to you. Somebody's telling you about their dream last night and you tune it out. And then you, you suddenly tune in and you realize that you don't know what the conversation is even about anymore. And you're having to like, you almost have to play this game where you like say something to try to prompt them to like reiterate what they already said so that you can pretend to actually be listening to them. You know, it's this funny game. Um, but, uh, you know, there is a formula to being cool, except like that's the that's the other side of this whole thing I'm talking about with uh, everything kind of becoming, quote unquote, cringeworthy. Like as as we become exposed to each other to such an extent that everybody kind of makes you cringe for one reason or another, most people, many people. You know, you see much more of people, you see into people's psyche, you see into someone's both, I mean, it's kind of like what I've said before about how, like, everyone's like, oh, social meteor, it's just people, like, showing you the best parts of their lives. They're just showing you uh, the good things. And while there's truth to that, while it is curated, and people are trying to show their best face, they're trying to make their life look best, you see so much unconsciously. Like, you can read between the lines. Like, if you're a perceptive person... You can read so much between the lines. 
And uh, you can tell when someone is being wanty or needy. You can tell when someone's coming from a place of insecurity. For me, I've just kind of lost my filter when it comes to that stuff. I mean, obviously, I don't say certain things. Like, I try not to ever say something out of anger or sadness or that type of thing. But when it comes to just, like, going off, I mean, I'm, I'm just so long-winded, I don't care. There's that quote, um, brevity is the soul of wit. I don't even know who originally said that. It's probably some author. Brevity is the soul of wit. And it's like, I don't agree with that at all. Everything is, is whatever. <laughs> you know, everything is the, everything is the soul of whatever. Whatever is the soul of everything. Good expression is good expression. To me, that's like the equivalent of saying, you know, a good pop song needs to be two and a half minutes and have a, uh, a an intro, a chorus, a hook, uh, a verse, hook, chorus, whatever the format is. Uh, to me, that's that same sort of logic. And you can see where the same thing that I was talking about earlier, the cycle of trends applies to self-expression as well. And I mean, that's what people were like making a big deal at a few years ago where they're like, can you believe that like podcasting is popular? It's people listen, people want to listen to a guy like uh, Joe Rogan's uh, talk, talk for three hours to some random dude, you know? And, you know, you can see where that came immediately on the heels of this trend toward brevity. And like, and Twitter was, you know, is obviously the best example of that, where they limited the amount of characters. Because, you know, that's something they, I don't think any other social meteor service, even going back to like LiveJournal, before the term social meteor was around, like, you know, you think about like the earliest social meteor services were basically journals where you would just go on about whatever. And then, uh, you know, as social meteor developed, they, they kind of followed that. They weren't going to limit your expression. While people might not be interested in paragraphs and paragraphs, you know, they weren't going to limit the amount that you could type if you wanted to. But you see where something like Twitter came out and just boomed in popularity in large part because it was just snippets. And it was like, oh, this is amazing. Brevity is the soul of wit. Twitter is the way to go because it's, it's so much better to express yourself in a single sentence than it is to uh, go on and on. But then, and, and, and two, like, podcasts became popular on the heels of um, YouTube shows that were just like these, like, quick, like, they were edited to be just like a minute long of somebody just talking so quickly. Like, so much was crammed into a short amount of time. And, and on a mainstream level, too, it's like news networks, the soundbite, you know, everything was geared toward brevity. But people heard that and they were like, this isn't the soul of wit that I thought it was. These short YouTube videos by these U- these young YouTube stars are actually obnoxious and they actually don't have that much in them. There's a reason why they were popular. You know, I'm not saying that it didn't appeal to a certain person and it didn't entertain a certain person, but that was something you used to hear about podcasts where they're like, you know, we just got so sick of the sound bites on the news. We like to hear people talk. We like to hear people have long form, natural conversations. But I think we're going to reach a point where brevity is the thing again. But you can even see where, like, the site for brevity, which is Twitter, you can see where that started to accommodate long-form ideas again. Like, even though that site was geared toward the, the trend toward brevity, which is like Brexit, brevity, 
but, uh, you know, even though Twitter was designed in that way to emphasize brevity and, and force you to be brief, you can see where they started. I think they expanded their character limit and allowed you to start making threads where you could connect posts so that you could basically write an essay. I mean, you see that from people sometimes. Like, if you look at Twitter, you'll see where it's like there's a post, and then it says, like, see thread. And, like, when you combine all of those posts, and sometimes people make incredibly long posts. Like, it'll be a thread that's, like, 20 posts, and each post is basically a little paragraph. And at that point, you're writing an essay. And this is a site that was specifically designed not to do that. So that itself shows you how even though brevity was the trend and everybody was like, oh, this site's good because it's just you say one thing in a single sentence. And it's good to have that skill. It's good to know how to keep things brief. But you can see where the trend toward long form came back. And it'll definitely go back to brevity again. And I mean, I was talking about web design trends recently, too, and I think it'll go that way as well, where the trend for a number of years has, has been to have an extremely minimal site. And one of the reasons for that is to have a site that adapts to whatever device you're using. It's, we want a site that is you know, versatile and it looks relatively similar when you look at it on a phone, when you look at it on a, an iPad. You heard of a biped, a biped, the iPad, <laughs> um, uh, but look at it on a, on a laptop, on a, on a TV. I mean, I forget that people are looking at these things on their TVs. I forget that a lot of people view the internet now through uh, like a Bluetooth TV setup. But the idea is that websites became kind of uniform in this certain way because it was the easiest way to make them adaptable to whatever device people are using. But I think it's going to, the trend is going to go away from that. And I thought about that when I was, you know, starting the process of redesigning my site. I was like, maybe I should just do what people are doing because that's the, the best. Having a sleek, minimal identity is the way to go these days. But I thought to myself, first of all, that's not me. And second, I think we're going to get back to the point, especially as digitization goes further, because... You know, with stores being threatened by the coronavirus lockdowns, you know, I mean, I think, well, I think there will be a boom in physical media again, because again, things go back and forth. Well, you can see where right when the world became even more digital, records and cassette tapes became popular ways to listen to music again. Like first it was, oh, MP3s are taking over. Digital streaming is taking over. And then in response, you know, the trend cycles back to much older formats that people had given up on even in the 90s, LPs and cassettes. Uh, so you can see where even that trend cycles back. Um, but, uh, you know, with the web design, you know, I was thinking like, you know, there probably will be a point where like having some website that people have to explore and there are like quote-unquote Easter eggs hidden because you would have those on old websites where it would be like if you click some hidden image, You'd go to some secret page, and navigating the site itself was an experience. And, uh, you know, while I don't think that that will become like the commercial standard, I don't think corporations or institutions are going to be making websites like that. I do believe, I strongly believe, we're going to see a return to the personal homepage where, depending on what kind of service or function somebody offers, because, I mean, it will depend on that. 
you know, I think we will see more obtuse design. I think we will see sites that are quote unquote harder to navigate. I think we will see where things are kind of hidden and buried and you kind of like, like we like kind of like a maze, you know, you kind of like snake your way through it. I think we will see that. Uh, I don't know to what end. I don't know, you know, who knows, but, um, you know, I think that long form writing becomes popular again, you know, personal long form writing, not necessarily like long articles and that kind of thing. Cause that stuff's so boring. Like I'll go try to read a news article and I just can't even get through it. You know, I mean, and that's on top of the fact that they're often biased and manipulative. I don't trust them. But even then, just as as a pure literary experience, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, I find them extremely hard to get through. They seem outdated. Which is why we, you know, which is why like, you know, uh, certain types of headlines became popular because they knew people weren't going to read things anymore. So you could communicate what you needed to communicate in the headline alone, and that became a tool of manipulation or a way to trick people into looking at the article because it's provocative, which should really never be the case in journalism, you know. Bar, you know, aside from editorials, like an actual news event should never try to be provocative because the event itself should speak for itself if it's reported accurately. But I don't need to get into all that. But just, yeah, you can see where these trends go around, where it's like, whether it's death metal, whether it's cars, whether it's websites and websites that remains to be seen. And there's so much online these days and it's become so centralized that I, I don't know exactly how this will shape out, but I'm personally of the belief that we will start to see more old school homepages that, you know, kind of force the user to experience them. And who knows how new, I mean, I'm saying all this as if all the technology is going to stay exactly the same, which it won't. So I'm just coming from a place where uh, talking about the current technology the current interface, the current software, the current devices. I'm, of course, coming from that place. Although people will still use all this. People will still use all of these things, but there very well be something new that excites people. But even with new things, I mean, as I've been talking about these cycles of trends, trends cycle back, but but there are new things, too, that they interact with. You know, it's, it's like, you know, nobody's taking photos. I mean, some people do, but the average person isn't taking photos of themselves with a vintage camera. Even though they might be dressing in vintage clothing, few of those people are taking photos of themselves with vintage cameras. So it's like the technology we interact with, even though we'll bring back older technology, even though people will decide to listen to records again, decide to listen to cassettes. It's like still the newer technology doesn't disappear and newer technology continues to be introduced. And that interacts with the older technology that kind of comes back, you know, it interacts with the older trends. So in that way, something new is sort of created, but it's always kind of a hybrid. And hybridization is so weird, especially in creativity. I think I was tricked by it at one point, you know, because people used to always talk shit about uh like jazz fusion, and I've never been into jazz, so I can't comment on that, but people used to talk about jazz rock and criticize it, 
But I can see, in my own way, I can see where once I actually develop taste in music where I don't like hybridization, I don't like hearing, I don't like listening to something and going, I know exactly what they were combining. And I guess it's funny, I always, you'd think I was the biggest death metal fan in the world with how much I talk about it. Um, I just feel like it's a good example. But there was a trend for a little while in, I'd say the late 90s, I mean, probably a little bit earlier, there were some, there were definitely a couple bands that did this earlier, but it became a trend in the late 90s, early 2000s, where death metal bands were influenced by jazz and free jazz. And sometimes it was good. I mean, you could say like Gore Guts or something like that had done it earlier, but you saw where bands were just straight up trying to hybridize and it just came out. It was, it was a novelty because that's what you get from hybrids. It's almost like breeding two animals, like a it's like creating a mule. You know, it's like when someone breeds a horse and a donkey and gets a mule. I think that's the equation. A horse plus donkey equals mule. And the mule can't go anywhere. Like, I mean, by, I mean, like genetically, I think mules can't breed. I think they're sterile. There's something like that. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I believe that that's how it works, where like you take these two creatures who are fully dynamic in their own ways. They can continue to pass on their genetic line, but you breed them together and it creates a mule which can't do anything. Once you get a mule, that's the end of the genetic line. It doesn't mean mules don't have a purpose. I'm not saying, you know, uh, we should just kill all the mules or something horrible like that. You know, I'm just saying, though, that it's like that's the end of the line. It's a novelty. It's a genetic novelty. And, you know, that's what you get with music and art that is similarly novel, where it's like, oh, we combined these two things in a really blatant way, and the result is something that can't go anywhere. Like, we, oh, we're a free jazz black metal band. There was a band who was doing that probably like 15 years ago, and just immediately just, oh, man, don't do this, guys. Because nobody's going to take that and be like, you know what, we're influenced by them. That's the end of the genetic line for those guys. There's nothing inspiring or cool about that. It's pure novelty for somebody who's like, oh, wow, the juxtaposition of free jazz and black metal. Oh, my God, these guys are genies. These guys are genies. They're not even geniuses. They're, They're genies. Oh, who would have ever thought that you could come... What's next? Are they going to combine rap with black metal? You know what I mean? It's like you can always create a novelty by combining two things. You can always create juxtaposition by combining new things. And if you're a creative person or just a a person in general, if you're an individual, you will inevitably, inevitably probably do that a little bit. I mean, I certainly do it in my own way, I think, when it comes to ideas. But it's something I really don't like when it comes to um, when it comes to creativity. It's something that I immediately sense where someone creates something and it's just this hybridized novelty. And I just I immediately at this point in my life turn away. And there was a point in time where I would have been tricked by that. I was like, can you believe these guys thought to do that? And it's like, that's all it needed to be is a thought. That's all it needed to be is a joke. It didn't need to go beyond that. But I'm not in control of them. I'm not I'm not a tyrant who runs other people's lives. I just, you know, I just know that. But I mean, that's the thing, too. That gets into like what I'm talking about, where everything, 
makes you cringe now and nothing is truly cool. Therefore, nothing really makes you cringe. You know, it's, we've entered this weird area where it's it's not just that everything makes you cringe. It's that everything also became cool. That's, that's, that's what I meant. And so it kind of cancels each other out. Like it all cancels each other out and we can let go of those terms. Like those terms don't exist anymore and we can only focus on what's honest, what's pure, what's coming from a, an honest and direct place. And I guess that's what I'm getting at with all this is that we've entered a point where the cycles of history have kind of like slowed down. Trends have kind of entered this world where everything has been hybridized with everything and it doesn't feel like anything truly new has come out in a while. And I know somebody could say I'm wrong or that I'm old, you know, or I'm out of touch. But I just I pay attention to a lot of things and I just don't see a lot of new ideas coming from younger people. And I mean, I think everybody probably goes through this feeling. Somebody would be saying this 60 years ago. Somebody would be saying this 100 years ago. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And I didn't know that that phrase came from the Bible. And who knows, maybe it didn't. Maybe the Bible took that phrase from something else. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, in those words, close to those words, that probably tells you that that idea was in circulation long before the Bible came to be. So I think everybody ends up feeling this way, where it's like, oh, people are just hybridizing and combining things and making these novelty combinations. And, uh, you know, it's possible for everybody to and everything to be cool as well as quote-unquote cringe therefore it all just wipes itself out and we're back to just honesty we're back to just we're back to just authenticity as the sole focus and maybe that's something that people have continually discovered like I'm not going to pretend that my time in history is unique I'm not going to pretend that my perspective is unique but I'm glad that things have actually reached this point I'm glad things have reached a point where I just don't care about either of those things I don't care if I embarrass myself within reason. You know, there's some things you they're hard hard to recover from, but you know, I don't care if I if somebody thinks what I do is embarrassing. I don't think I don't I also don't care if somebody thinks what I do is cool or not cool. Because to me it all just kind of cancels each other out. And as long as I'm communi- communicating something that is honest, that's all I care about. But you don't want honesty to become a novelty either because it can easily become one. So you can see where it never ends. (laughs) It never really ends. And again, it gets back to, you know, Alan Watts, who I often invoke, but, you know, he does have many profound insights. Uh, But, and I know I've mentioned it on here before, but Alan Watts talked about somebody who doesn't like the universe, who doesn't like life, and they want to rearrange the universe. And what they're going to end up doing, like if you were to tell that person, okay, I'm going to let you recreate the universe. I'm going to let you reorganize the universe. I'm going to let, you know, I'm, I'm, I might not be quoting him exactly. I might be just kind of riffing on my own interpretation. But he did say, like, if you let that person who doesn't like the universe rearrange or recreate the universe, they're going to create what already exists, but they're basically just going to rearrange the furniture, Like, they're still going to use the same points of reference they already have because that's all they know. And that's important to consider when you think about fiction and things like that, where it's like, oh my God, he came up with a completely new idea. It's a, uh, it looks like a lizard, but it has wings and flies and breathes fire. 
a dragon. And it's something that apparently isn't real. And oh my god, that's so imaginative. But when you look at it, it's like it's taking components from reality. Like wings, like you know that creatures fly and have wings. Like you know that fire is a real thing. And you know that fire is destructive and can be used as a weapon. So it's like you're taking these three components and you're being like a lizard with wings who breathes fire. And while it is a new idea, like it is novel, whoever came up with that idea first, like whoever, like whatever, I mean, it seems like every culture in the entire world came up with the idea of a dragon independently, you know, and then you can get into the whole, oh, they knew about the dinosaurs thing. But still, it's like when you think about in fantasy, the idea of like a dragon, just as an example, like it's a hybrid of, of different components. It's not like they created a brand new idea. And you can abstract things out to where it's like, oh, it's this amorphous, gaseous creature. Like in some sort of sci-fi story, it's like the world's under attack by this gaseous, otherworldly entity that we can't quite describe. But you can still only describe it using terms and points of reference that we know. It's gaseous. It's amorphous. You know, it's like a, a cloud of dark matter. You know, and at that point, you just you end up describing nothing. To be truly creative, if you want to come up with something that's truly new, you basically reach a point where you have to just describe nothing. You have to describe something that somebody can't comprehend, not even you. Because if you could comprehend it, you could describe it. So in that way, you know, we just end up with nothing in the end. If we want to be truly original. And even then, though, there's something to it. There's some some sort of point of reference that you can understand and people can understand. And and you can see where the human mind does this in its own way because sometimes you'll read a book where a character is not described. Like it doesn't say what hair color they are, it doesn't say like what they what their body type is, it doesn't say what they look like, it doesn't say if they have a beard. You know, it doesn't say if they have 10 earrings in one ear. You don't know what a character looks like, but your mind creates an image. If you get immersed in that story, it doesn't matter how detailed a description of a character is, you create an image of them. And sometimes they won't describe a character in a book up to a certain point. Like, they introduce a character, but they don't say, he was five foot three, and he had uh, red hair down to his shoulders, and a mustache. You know, they won't say that, but then later in the story, they'll be like, his red hair was tied back. And your visual up to that point, because there was no description, is that they had blonde hair or dark hair. And then all of a sudden, the story tells you they have red hair out of nowhere. And you're like, wait a second, I have to reconcile this. But I bring that up just because it's like, even when you're given no description, you still create a point of reference that you relate to. And it's weird how you do that with certain characters on its own. Like, how do you generate that? How does your brain decide that a character who doesn't have a description looks a certain way or who has a minimal description? Like, when I read Lord of the Rings, it was after I saw the movies, and I had an extremely difficult time not visualizing the movie characters, which is okay because I think they, they did a good job casting. But it's still interesting. It's like, that's another thing you have to reconcile because when you, or it's like the outsiders, like, 
you know, if you've seen the movie The Outsiders and you read the book, it's hard not to see the characters as they appear in the movie, even though, like, one of the characters has a different color hair. Like, it describes Dally having, like, he's like a towhead blonde in the book. But in the movie, he's, you know, Matt, I was going to say Matt Damon, Matt Dillon. <laughs> he's, did you know Matt Damon is in The Outsiders? Uh, no, but it's Matt Dillon and he has dark hair. But in the book, I believe Dally is described as having towhead blonde hair. So it's like there's things like that that you have to reconcile. But you, it turns out you don't, though. You don't actually have to reconcile them. But it's just like even when you're given nothing as a description, you create something. And you create that thing using things that already exist in your mind. And so it goes back to the Alan Watts thing where like if you if you let a man reorganize or recreate the universe, he would ultimately end up creating the same universe we already have. The furniture might be rearranged. Things might be combined differently. But he's still only going to be able to use the points of reference he has. So in effect, he's going to create the same universe. It's going to have all the same components. Even if he's like, oh, well, but in my universe, snakes have wings. Well, it's like you're still using wings that we know from our reality. You're still using a snake from our reality. You're basically going to create a chimera. And a chimera is basically what we create in times like these, where it's like, oh, no, 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 it's a new thing. It's a totally new thing. It has a lion's head, a goat's head. Wings, big, big eagle wings. It's got a, you know, a, a serpentine tail. I don't, I don't remember all the components that a chimera has, but it's like when you run out of ideas, you end up creating a chimera at best. And uh, sometimes that's cool. Sometimes that can be cool. But there's a reason why when you hit those dead ends, you then are like, well, well, you know what? Uh, Fashion has become this chimera, and we've hit a dead end, because it turns out a chimera can't breed either. A chimera can't, (laughs) a chimera is just like a mule. A chimera can't have uh, offspring. The genetic line ends at the chimera. And so when you hit that dead end, culturally, creatively, intellectually, you end up cycling back to another earlier idea and treating that like it's new. Where it's like, oh, we've... Hit a, we've, we've hit the, the dead end here. We've, we've created a chimera. We've created this hybridization. We thought we were recreating the universe, but we just rearranged the furniture. And then you cycle back and are like, well, so let's start wearing Mad Men style suits again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's start, wear, let's start manufacturing long line trench coat sweaters. We've hit the dead end. We, we've combined mom jeans with purple hair. For the last five years, let's circle back to uh, low-rise jeans and, uh, you know, uh, bleached hair, platinum blonde hair. And, of course, not everybody does the same thing, but you can see where trends, you know, impact large groups of people. But I think where things get weird is when people do things permanently, like when you can't just cycle back. Like I think about people who have gotten a bunch of tattoos in their 20s or things like that, where it's like, that's something you can't undo. You just have to just, if you, if you don't like your tattoos anymore, you just have to justify it the rest of your life. Or 
maybe uh, you'll be able to get them removed, but that's a, a trial unto itself. So I, I would say with trends, you know, try not to do anything too permanent. You know, I mean, it's hard to know who you are and what you really want. But I mean, that's scary to me. Is doing. I mean, you can shave your eyebrows off if you want, but they grow back. But when people start doing things that are permanent, getting tattoos, all kinds of things, you know, I do wonder, I do, I worry about them. Not that I'm like deeply, not that I'm in pain thinking about what's going on with people, but I do worry about them a little bit when they start making decisions of permanence because things, trends cycle back, ideas cycle back. Even though the Ouroboros swallows more and more of its own tail by day and the cycle gets quicker, you know, the loop, uh, things travel through that loop at higher frequency. And who knows where that goes? Does there reach a point where the Ouroboros swallows itself whole? Does it swallow so much of its tail that it finally just you know, uh, is gone, that it completely disappears? Can the Ouroboros swallow itself entirely? Is that the death of the universe? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I do see where, like, things do cycle back. And, and I think as the Ouroboros swallows more and more of its tail, I think it gets harder and harder to think things are cool or uncool or to think somebody's expression is quote-unquote cringe. I think it gets harder to evaluate things that way. And if you're thinking that way, I think you're stuck in something. I think you're stuck in a period that doesn't exist anymore. I think you're stuck in a time that doesn't exist when you're still thinking that way. And And it's hard not to think that way. I mean, I still think some things are cool. I think I still think some people are cool. I mean, I think all everybody's cool. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think anybody's uncool, really. Um, but uh, you know, you're always gonna have things that make you cringe. You're always gonna have things that you respond to positively. So it's not like that will ever disappear completely. But it gets harder and harder for me to actually judge things that way. It, it's, it gets harder and harder for me to actually judge something as absolutely cool or absolutely uncool. It gets harder and harder to cringe at what someone says, no matter how disagreeable I find it, no matter how embarrassing I find it. It gets harder and harder for me to respond to it that way because I know where they're coming from. Because when you start to know where people are coming from and what they're trying to communicate, it's very difficult to judge them for it. Even if you think that they're at odds with you. And if they're not at odds with you, then you really don't need to judge them. You really don't need to evaluate them. You know, so, it, and you know, you can see where this plays into social politics and all that, which I, I won't get into for once, but, you know, it is that thing where it's like you reach a point where you just realize that if you can figure out where someone's coming from, even if it is very disagreeable to you, even if it goes against your very being, And there's no way you could ever support them. At the very least, if you know where they're coming from, it becomes very difficult to completely judge them and therefore condemn them. And that's kind of what people do when they say, oh, that made me cringe. 
and the way that cringe has become this catch-all term that people constantly use for anything that makes them feel, I guess, a vicarious embarrassment. Because everything's embarrassing. That's just the story of life, is that everything is embarrassing. And the more you accept that, the less embarrassing it gets. And I feel like we're in an age where everything is so exposed that you can't help but feel embarrassment all the time for yourself, for other people. And so it should just all cancel itself out. But in doing that, it also cancels coolness out. It also cancels like the idea of putting someone on a pedestal. Because how can you do that? Knowing what you know, how can you do that? Knowing what you know now, how can you do any of that? How can you evaluate people based on these standards that don't exist and might never have? Because your standards for those things are often based on a time in which you didn't even live. Where you look back and you're like, people were so much cooler back then. People were so much cooler when I was a kid in the 90s. It's like, did you truly feel that way then? If you were a 30-year-old man in 1993, would you truly feel that way then? Would you not feel some aversion to your, towards your contemporaries then? Because, I mean, I was a teenager, you know, through some of that period. I was a teenager during times that people younger than me look back on now through the foggy lens of nostalgia and are like, things were cooler then. And I was a teenager then, and that, that time period made me what I was. Maybe that's just me, but it also made all the other people I know who they were. So, uh, you know, it, it's nice to look back on previous times and be like, things were cooler then. But you have to realize that I think it's always been that way. Although I will say, I do believe the Ouroboros is swallowing more of its own tail, and that does change things. That does disrupt the cycles. But the cycles are still happening. They're just probably spinning out of control. People are probably just trying to hold on to things more. That's my own take. Maybe someone always would have said that. But I think the Ouroboros has always been swallowing its own tail. I think that's a phenomenon that, you know, anybody could and would have noticed. They might not have used the Ouroboros as the metaphor. But I think it's something people have continually noticed. Hence ideas like the Kali Yuga. I think all these eschatological ideas play into that. There's a reason why the decline of culture, the decline of coolness, always works its way into eschatology, the apocalypse. Very rarely is an apocalyptic story, an apocalyptic mythology, very rarely does it involve everything was perfect and cool and then the world ended. Usually there's an overall cultural societal, social decline that goes along with the apocalypse, that leads up to the apocalypse. So very rarely do you have an eschatological storyline of everything was perfect and then hellfire came flying up out of the earth. Very rarely is that the story, and it's interesting that that's the case. It's interesting that that's rarely the story, if ever. 
I mean, maybe in some sci-fi movie, that's how they present it. Like one day the aliens came. Everything was normal and fine. And then one day the aliens came. But in, you know, eschatology and, you know, apocalyptic mythology, very rarely is that the case. Usually something, you know, akin to the Ouroboros swallowing more and more of its own tail. Things getting kind of haywire. Things spinning out of control. Culture declining. Kali Yuga is a great example of that. The way the Kali Yuga describes the decline of people's relationships to each other. Decadence. Moral decay. All of that usually goes hand in hand with those sorts of scenarios, with those sorts of mythologies. Am I saying that that's where we're heading to? I don't know. You know, I said the death of the universe earlier, like what happens when the Ouroboros finally swallows the last of its tail, which really isn't much of a tail anymore. Because a snake just is a tail with a head on it, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know what happens then. I mean, it's a metaphor, so it only goes so far. But uh, I think you can accept everything by just being like, oh, I no longer need to evaluate things based on who is cool who is uncool, what is embarrassing, what is not embarrassing. Yeah, you're still going to feel those things. You're still going to be drawn to certain things. You're still going to be averse to other things. But those aren't the standards to live by. And we're exposed to too much now to ever live that way. We know better now. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can 